Hello and welcome again to Oscar Mike Radio. I'm the host. My name is Travis. Oscar Mike Radio is part of the Hoobazoo Network. You can find out more on Hoobazoo.com. And I want to thank my sponsors who supported me for number 300. Joyce Asak of Asak Real Estate, Army National Guard veteran Mark Holmes of Reaper Detailing and Power Washing. And my supporters, can't forget them, Semper Savage Salad Dressing, Bottom Gun Coffee, and Quezon Shaving Company. And this is a monumentous day for a couple of reasons. First, it is number 300, and I do have Mistress Carrie back, but we're recording this on June 26, which for people who care or know, this time last year, I was in the ER in Brockton Hospital with my legs pretty much done. And the comeback is real. Oscar Mike Radio is real. And Mistress Carrie is back here with me for real. Mistress, welcome back to Oscar Mike Radio. What's up? Thank you for having me back. It's crazy that it was episode 100, then episode 200, then episode 300. Congratulations. That's a huge deal. Actually, actually, Mistress, you with this show, you take the lead, the crown of being on my show the most. It was yeah! number it was number 62, number 84, then 100, 200, and now 300. 62 was about Elizabeth Warren and all the veterans getting oh, all, yeah. all the hater aid, right? You know, yeah. she doesn't like us anymore. And then it was you know 84. We followed up with some of your story, and then you know 100, 200, and now 300. Oh, crazy! I can't believe it's been that long. It sometimes like time passes, and I don't realize how much time has passed, and it it freaks me out a little. It's like when you see someone like their baby, and then the the baby, then they put up a picture on Facebook, and they're like graduating from high school, and you're like, wait, what? Right, right. So crazy. And this well, thank baby, you for having me back. And this baby has has grown in different ways, so it's just cool again. And speaking of of podcasts and shows, you know, the last time we talked, WAF was off the air, and you were you know getting your own show going. You have like you just turned uh, like 100, 107 now was last week. Yeah, this of, week it's episode one hundred and eight. Yeah, it's crazy. That's gone by like a flash. And then I cocktails know. in the war room. I know it is um, 190 episodes. Yeah, one, one, nine, what? zero. What? Yeah, it's nuts. It doesn't. When I go back and look at all of the stuff, you know, all the sit reps, all the war rooms, all the podcast episodes, all the different interviews I've done. I'm like, holy shit, I've been pretty productive in the middle of a pandemic. I have done a lot of stuff. Oh, yeah, just. A couple of things, you know, putting all this on, getting married, you know, embracing, you know, that whole life. Do you know how bad I want to call you a dependent? Do you do you, do you understand just how bad that is? <laughs> I do have a dependent ID, but I told my husband in no uncertain terms is he allowed to call me a dependa because I, you know, I I've seen all the memes. That is so not me. It isn't. No, I, 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 that whole concept growing up in New England, because, you know, like Devons was an active duty base until the early nineties, but, you know, growing up in New England, we, we have a lot of military around, but it's a lot of guard and reserve military. 
And so that idea of like the active duty, massive bases and the whole culture and the community is something that I'm still learning about from this side of it being the wife now, because all the military work that I've done over, you know, two plus decades, it was always as media, as, you know, a a military supporter or whatever, but seeing it from the dependent perspective and especially because my husband's still active duty and going on these bases and kind of seeing it from the active duty side of things. It's like, oh, it's been a learning experience for sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. And, you know, let's go back a little bit. You, you've done a whole lot of learning growing just with, you know, being a, a podcaster and, and growing mistresscarry.com. I guess my first like question question would be, you know, how, how does that align with your experience from doing radio work? Is it just a different, a same microphone, different audience, or is it the same preparation? You know, how the two kind of separate, even though they're kind of considered the same thing almost? I think it's like a fundamentals thing, right? So like, there's a skill set that, that is used in both. And those skills translate pretty seamlessly, you know, when it doesn't matter the end location or destination of, of the interview, the audio you're working on, the end goal can be anything, but the interview prep, the equipment and software required, the editing skills, um, you know, your own skill set to be able to formulate an interview in, in a proper kind of order so that it sounds like you didn't put any work in, but you and I both know, and anyone that's ever gotten behind a microphone, the more it sounds like it's easy and natural, the more work you put into it to get it there. Those are all skills that I learned trial by fire at AAF. I mean, I learned some things when I was in college for broadcasting and communications and radio, but practically the concepts are all the same. So if you master one and then you leave that station and go to another one, you got to learn some new stuff, but the idea behind it is all kind of the same. So transitioning from radio to podcasting, it, it, a lot of the skills were the same. And I think that that's where, for me, I felt like I had a leg up over people that just woke up one day at home and decided, I think I want to start a podcast with no experience because that's a massive learning curve all at once to, to figure out how to interview somebody, to figure out what equipment you need, to figure out you know, um, how to research, how to formulate what you want your podcast to be about. And then to practically do it, to schedule the interviews, to know who's going to be a good interview and who's not, to be able to edit it and get it produced and to be able to deliver it and find an audience. Like, I was very lucky that I learned all that drinking out of a fire hose at AAF and in my radio career. That was a pretty easy transition for me. Part of what's been hard is the relaxed part of it. I still catch myself looking at the clock 
because radio teaches you, we got to go into commercials in a minute and a half. I got to wrap this up or, or I got to tee up the next song. And so I've got to steer the interview in a way that I can get us to that song or the record guy standing there, like, don't forget to promote the show or the record's coming out or like, like it, there's always, it's very fast paced. Radio is very quick. It's very fast paced. It's live. Right. There's no do over. There's no, oh, I'll take it out in post. There's none of that. Your ass is hanging out. And that is part of what makes it fun. But I catch myself still feeling like I've got that live radio gun to my head a lot of time. I'm talking about the podcast interviews that I do. And the other thing is being able to swear, (laughs) which still is so weird. And especially now because I'm doing both. Yeah. And I'm back on the radio and podcasting. Um, I do things like different now. Like now I, I do most of my interviews po- for the podcast. And I structure things knowing that I'm going to go back in and pull parts of it out to put on the radio. Whereas before I used to structure the interview for the radio show. And then after the show was over, I would go in and pull out all the music and all the commercials and squish all the talking parts together and put that up as a podcast. So it's, it's backwards now. But people don't understand, Mistress, that there's some very real consequences if a profanity or swear, words, swear word is heard on the air. You want to talk cancel culture? Radio listeners in the FCC invented that shit. <laughs> One rogue F-bomb, one bevy of complaints from, so, so the FCC bases it on community standards, right? The idea of the George Carlin seven dirty words, that's not how it works. Even though that's a funny as hell bit and still holds it is, right? Um, it's based on community standards. So what I could get away with as Mistress Carrie on WAAF in Boston If you took me an AAF and all of that and put it in Biloxi, Mississippi, the community would not accept the same thing. Because even though I was saying things that weren't quote unquote vulgar or like whatever, the community just is not going to accept the same thing. So if, if, if you said something that people didn't agree with, they could complain to the FCC. You get enough of those complaints and it hurts the station and the station to control the bleeding will just let you go. Then, of course, there are the things in the FCC, part of those seven dirty words, and also the way that they describe kind of the definition of indecency is describing sexual acts or bodily fluids. So here's an example. This is how I explain it to non-radio people because this is the weeds of it. I can go on the radio and call you a pussy, but I can't ask you to lick mine. Same word, different context. A verb and a noun is, is that powerful? Yes. A hundred percent. That's where it action versus a, A hundred percent. So I could say like, oh my God, you're being such a dick right now. But I can't say how big is your dick because it is literally referencing your sexual body part. Then there's words like fuck where there's just no context. But there's some words where, where it's gray. And that's when the host 
and the management have to be aware and really know your audience. So here's the example. I'm on the air at the Pike in Worcester, okay? That show, those are my people. Those are the people that grew up listening to me. It's in Worcester, Massachusetts. I know where I can push the boundaries of, of topic, of language, of whatever, because, because I'm very familiar with the, with the area. But the Westwood One radio show that I do, half the time, I don't even know what stations I'm on at that given moment. And there's a lot of those stations that are in the Bible Belt. There's a lot of those stations that are down south. There's a lot of those places where, you know, the purple-haired Yankee Boston loudmouth woman is going to be taken differently. And so I structure that radio show where I don't exactly know every place it's going differently than I structure the show that I know is going to the Pike and going to people that are in the New England region that because I, you have to be careful Absolutely. because it's not even just about um, protecting your job and protecting the company like it, it, the advertisers. I mean, we've all lived in this era of, you know, advertisers wanting to be part of something, not wanting to be part of something, pulling their ad dollars, people getting fired over that. Like. And, and you carry I mean, look, you want to ruin your career violate an FCC, get a license of a radio station revoked from the FCC. You'll, you'll never, there are very few things that will literally end your career in radio, terrestrial broadcast radio, that jeopardizing a station's license and, and manipulating the ratings and, and trying to manipulate the Nielsen people meter, like the actual way they get the ratings. If you get caught doing that, your career is basically over industry-wide yeah well this, this leads me to something else i'm thinking about as you're talking is you know there there is the notion that that you know video is the way to go 100 now but what is it about radio podcasting music in general where it's literally we're, we're going from you and me right now we can go back 30 40 000 years and be in a cave you know Paint on the wall, you with purple hair, me with, you know, this, right? And people will be around us listening to what we talk about. What's, how do you quantify the power of the human voice still with all this visual bombardment we speak of every day? Evolution. It's literally in our DNA. It's, you know, it's, I call, you know, when I'm sitting by a campfire with my friends, it's caveman TV. That's what we call it. Like it, it is before there was writing, before there was books, before there was any kind of technology to record, stories were passed down orally. There are still, you know, there, there, are, there are tribes where their languages have died because people didn't learn how to speak them. There are, there are still native tribes around the world whose stories have never been written down and their stories have been forgotten because they ran out of people to, to tell them to. That is how, as a species, we evolved. And it's still, in my opinion, the best way for us to come together and to settle differences is to sit down together and hash it out. And I feel like when it comes to radio and podcasting versus video, which was your initial question, I think it's all about how the person's using it. What is the person that's listening, that's, that's the consumer of it, the end goal? How are they using it? 
because if you're getting them when they're in the car, if you're getting them when they're running, if like if they're doing something where video isn't practical, then audio. That's that's the way to go, you know, until we can all sit in an autonomous car and watch YouTube videos while we're driving and sitting in traffic. Video isn't going to meet that demand. Now, as less people commute and more people work from home and more people spend time in front of screens more often, does video have an advantage there? A hundred percent. Like with my podcast, um, I still only release it uh, in audio formats. A lot of time I record my video, the, the interviews with the video, if they, if the guest allows me to, and I bank them, I don't know what I'm going to do with them all. I think eventually I'm going to turn the podcast into a video and audio product but because i do the war room every week i feel like i'm making that video content and it's a little more interactive because of the comment streams and everything that is part of it and it's live kind of the way it's like live radio almost that's why i love doing the war room so much it's like it has that ass hanging out kind of vibe to it um but i think i think people there's i mean look at audiobooks yeah the number of people that listen to audiobooks as opposed to sitting down and reading them. And it's like, what are those people doing? I used to be a long haul truck driver. Like, it's a hell of a lot harder to finish books when you're driving if you're trying to read it. A little more dangerous and illegal, I might add, than it is to just listen to the audiobook. And so I think as long as there are those people that are doing things that only allow them to use their ears because their eyes are busy doing other things, I think audio content is incredibly important but i think it also strikes something within us that's tribal that's ancient well speaking of tribal and ancient and bringing people together (laughs) one of the aspects of what you've been doing is the cocktail in the war room and the cocktail in the war room family and you know i'm going to share with you a couple of stories from the family so for those of you who don't know, you know, Mistress got on her phone with a earbuds and started just having an open live stream and people came and, and checked it out. And then it grew to something else. And, you know, the, the War Room family is here with me in spirit. They're not here physically. That's the name that you guys gave yourselves too, by the way, that, that you is, started calling yourselves the War Room family. You know, absolutely. Absolutely. That is absolutely 100% correct because, you know, we wanted a, a, we were a tribe. We became a tribe. We we became with each other and and we, you know, clued into your, not clued in is the right word, but we got in touch with you as a a person behind the microphone. And uh, I just want to share a story with you real quick. Um, You know, I'm in Florida in uh, 2021 competing in the Masters Nationals weightlifting meet. And I had told the family, hey, I'm going to be in Florida. I'm traveling. And, you know, some of the families like, be careful, you know, don't get too hot, whatever. But they were doing a live stream of the meet and I'm lifting. And the guy comes and says, hey, who are all these cocktails in the war room people? (laughs) I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, there's like, you know, 15, 20 people on here who are going like, he's like, see, you know, I W T R cocktails, in the war room, go Travis. And I realized these were my fam. These were my tribe. These were, you know, all the rock and roller metalheads, just like me taking time out of their day to watch the old dude lift. 
<laughs> and I don't know if you've heard other stories like that, but did you think for a million years that, you know, when you started doing this, that you'd have people two years later still getting together on Zoom, talking to each other? What's, no. What do you, what do you feel about that? How could I have seen that? Well, just, like you said, March 14th of 2020, the radio station I spent 29 years at had gone off the air a few weeks before. I literally the week before had registered my company, my LLC, and had just started construction of my recording studio that I'm sitting in now, MCHQ. And somebody that I used to work with was like, look, I know how you're doing, but, you know, people are, you know, I'd put up a picture on Facebook and I'd get a lot of comments and people say, how are you doing or whatever? And they were like, you should go live on Facebook or Instagram or something and just, you know, just for a few minutes. I mean, this is when the world really was starting to lock down, when we were really uncertain about what the world was, was going to be like. And like you said, I, I just went live on my phone. It's, it's not like I was like, Ooh, I need good lighting. And Ooh, I, you know, got to get some cameras. Like I was just like, I'm just going to go live for a few minutes and say hi to everybody. And then all of a sudden 11,000 people showed up the first day. And I was like, what is going on? Because I, it, it wasn't so much that they wanted to hear what I, how I was doing. It's that I was saying all the things that they were thinking too. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm scared. I, I, I don't know how to grapple with this immense loss of my career and something that was such a defining thing in my life, a driving force and my passion in my life, which was my job at WAF. Those concepts are not exclusive to me. Everybody was afraid of the uncertainty of what was happening with COVID. Everybody can relate to going into work one day and having them go, company sold, closing, we're laying you off. You don't have a job anymore. And you're like, I have a family and a mortgage. And these are all universal fears that we all share as humans. doesn't matter what your job is. It doesn't matter, you know, where you live. Like everyone in the world was afraid of COVID. And so me just saying it just gave other people the ability to go, me too. And so when that first night, when I saw in the comments, like, can you do this again tomorrow? How could I have ever imagined that that flippant decision to go live that night and to go, yeah, I'm going to do it again. P.S. It's called Cocktails in the War Room. Because for years, if anybody that I was friends with came to my house, I have a room in my house that we call the war room and have for over a decade. And that's where the bar is. So I'd say, come on, let's go get a cocktail in the war room. Like, that's what we said. So when I went live that night, it was like, hey, meet me for a cocktail in the war room. I'll be live at 830. Like, that's all it was. I wasn't like, ooh, that's a catchy phrase that I could turn into a logo and put on a T-shirt. Like, how the hell... Could I have ever imagined that it could have turned into what it what it has? There's just no way. And as it started to grow. And as we got together night after night after night, and as the family started to kind of congeal, even though it's kind of a weird word for it, but like truth, you know, but that's what it was It added as it started to solidify itself, you know, because I reached out to you when I found out about the private group. And I was very worried in the early days about anyone kind of using the name and anyone kind of 
like trying to do anything that I wasn't aware of because like we were talking about with radio and, and, and with a brand or a company, there is a, a, a fear liability that like someone could perceive someone else speaking for you and, and, and how that then turns around and reflects on you. So in the early days I was like, and I, I remember talking to you about it offline and being like, well, what is this private group? I, I understand the family wants to do something that's not official that you guys want to gather privately. And I, that was amazing, but I just was like, okay, you're not going to tell everybody this is something I'm doing, right? Like you guys are, this is a groundswell movement. And as soon as I knew that that's what it was, number one, I was rest assured that like, okay, then this is in that nobody's trying to like speak for me. Cause at this point in my life, I was still trying to find my voice because my quote unquote voice, meaning my radio station had been taken away. But then on top of it, that was kind of when I was like, these people, they're calling themselves a family and they want to start getting together on nights, like without me, like, like, how is this happening? That I think was kind of when I really started to realize, like, this is like a thing. Like, this is more than just like this little city, silly video thing that I'm doing to keep myself from going crazy. That's when I started realizing, like, these are real personal relationships that are being formed here. And that was like, that was kind of like my first instinct was like to be kind of afraid of it at first. Cause I was like, Oh, I don't know what this means. But then as I started to see like what a powerful, amazingly passionate, emotionally positive thing this became. I was like, how fucking cool is that? But I think anybody in my shoes would would have those reservations in the in the early days of it because you just don't know. Well, no, you just don't know. It's a lot of change happening real quick. And, and you know, we 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 got through it. I think we we demonstrated that, you know, hey, we really are just a group of people, you know, here for each other. You've gotten to see certain things that that we've done outside of what you know you do with you know your 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 um you know podcast and show and so we are here and we're here to stay and we've been staying you know i know what, it's crazy it's so cool right right you know but but here it is you know here it is you know somebody had a birthday today you know in the group and we're all wishing them happy birthday somebody had a new grandchild and wish them happy birthday somebody 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 needed a shot and you know i got you know, schooled about, you know, the fact that I needed the shot. <laughs> telling you, telling you, I'm telling you, it, it, it was just, you, you know, we, we come to Tuesday night to kind of get recharged and then we go out through our, 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 our week. And, and, and so that goes back again to the power of the voice and, and what's going on right now. Um, it, it's, and it's just different because it goes back to something that you said earlier, people aren't coming together to try to hash things out. It's a yeah. very one zero white or black, no in between. No, Everybody's up in a silo right now. Right? And, and it's very easy. And I think that's something that social media, I am a big believer in social media. I think there are a lot of things, like you said, you know, you're wishing people happy birthday. You're keeping track and, and in contact with people around the, the country and around the world. Those are all great things. But I think, um, you know, when I got into radio, it, it became obvious really fast 
don't say anything on the air. You're not willing to back up at a show when someone comes up and looks you in the eyeballs and they want to ask you about something you said on the radio. Because there were a lot of examples of radio people at other stations when I started my radio career where they, they hid in that studio. They were that booming voice behind that microphone, but then they slither it out the back door of the studio and kind of hid because people didn't know what they looked like. And so they didn't have to have any kind of um, responsibility and there were no repercussions if they said something. And then as social media kind of tore that down and made it impossible for radio people to hide anymore, you you really couldn't be that person that was just behind the mic going, I'm going to say anything. And then I'm going to slip out the back door. Nobody's going to know it's me at the grocery store. And obviously with the hair I have in the voice, like kind of hard for me to hide. Right. But I learned really early on that you better be able to back up what you say because You have to expect that people are going to challenge you and it's not going to be on the request line. They're going to come up to you, especially the audience that AAF had. Rock fans in general, we don't give a fuck. Getting up in your grill about it. And so I learned, look, have a strong opinion. I'm not telling you not to have a strong opinion. Say whatever you want. But freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. And I think social media... A lot of people came up in this era where they want that freedom of speech to be able to go online and post and tweet whatever they want, insult people, all of that, and have no consequence. And I've done it to people myself, where I've seen people comment on my Facebook page or like whatever, or, you know, people that I loved it when people used to call the request line because they didn't know that we had caller ID. And, you know, there would be people that I would call back and be like, oh, you didn't think I had your phone number? There were people that would call and threaten me and I would just call the cops and be like, I just got threatened by, here's their number. Like, because they, and then all of a sudden it was like, oh shit. But I think with social media, it's a little bit easier to hide and you feel a little bit more protected of your anonymity to just be that internet troll. And so I think we're seeing a lot more people. And I think there's a difference between being doxxed where people are like purposefully putting people's personal information out there with, with the motive of, of people being hurt. I don't necessarily think that someone hiding behind a cartoon image online and some fake name that gets identified by name. It happens all the time on TikTok, you know, that some Karen will go out harassing little kids. And then all of a sudden people go, oh, I recognize that lady. That's not necessarily doxing. That's just holding you accountable for your own actions. There's a difference between going, I'm going to give you their social security number and their mailing address and tell you where their kids go to school and just going, oh no, I know who that person is. Because now they're going to get held responsible for harassing their neighbors or whatever. Like, it's a fine line in some cases. But I think I think people are learning that, like, the Internet, that that there are consequences. And I think, obviously, with any new technology, there's a learning curve, you know, and we're still trying to figure all of that out. But um, 
Well, let's talk, let's talk learning curves for a minute because I get a lot of veterans, a lot of veterans like myself started podcast during COVID. A lot of people in general started podcasts during COVID because there was nothing else to do. Right. Right. And, and one of the questions I got, I got a couple of questions, but the first one I get is, is something that I think you can help me out with. I get asked the question, how do you turn it on? What I mean by that is, you know, you've got your stuff. I've got my stuff. I mean, we could spend the next eight hours, you and I just talking about our stuff. Sure. How do you take all that and flip the switch that that stuff is off and now you are on and focused on the, the subject or guest in front of you. And, and, and it's, it's, I can articulate it my way, but I'd like to hear what your thoughts on it. Well, I want to make sure I understand the question. Like, sure. are you, are you saying like that someone with no media background that just started a podcast out of thin air because they, they just wanted to do it and they thought it, you know, they were interested in it or whatever, how to get that started? I think so. Yes. Yes. Because I think I look at podcasting as like anything else. I'll use a guitar playing analogy. I'll use a painting analogy. I think all of it is an activity that I think, first of all, first and foremost, has to come from inside you and that you're doing it to bring yourself joy first because anyone that picks up a guitar on the first day that thinks they're going to be the next Eddie Van Halen, anyone that picks up a paintbrush for the first time and thinks they're going to be the next Picasso. I think if you ask Eddie Van Halen why he picked up the guitar the first time, it wasn't going to be because he wanted to be a rich and famous guitar player. It was because it made him happy and he was passionate about it. And I think if that's why you start a podcast, if that's why you start painting, if that's why you pick up the guitar and you go into it for the love of it, do it to make you happy. But if you're doing it to become famous or you're doing it to become rich, I think it's like anything else. Getting to that top 1% of 1% of 1%, I'm not saying it's not possible and I'm not trying to discourage anybody. But at that point, you got to be willing to be the Eddie Van Halen where you're literally playing guitar 20 hours a day. You also, there's a little bit of a genetic, you know, gift from the gods that, look, I could play guitar 20 hours a day. I'm never going to play the solo from Eruption correctly. Never. It's never, never going never. to happen for me. And I have to be okay with that. So I think there are people that are just... Like if you got into radio, right? I never got into radio thinking I'm going to be Howard Stern. Howard Stern is going to go down as a legend in the craft. There are certain people in radio that just hit next level. A guy like Joe Rogan in podcasting, whether you like him or not, he, he, he was, he's good at it for first of all. And second of all, he met the moment where his podcast had legs and technology and guests and all of that at the moment when podcasting hit in a way no one could have predicted. So if that's, you're getting into podcast to be Joe Rogan, for lack of a better example or whoever, then you got to be willing to do what he did. 
And let's not forget, and no slight against Joe Rogan, he's part of my podcast intro. Joe Rogan was kind of famous before he launched the podcast. He was surrounded by famous comedian friends. He had a career, had a television show, all of that before he launched the podcast. So it's not like he just walked in one day and was like, I think I'm just going to have a podcast and I'm going to get famous from it. Like he did it as a hobby, but he already had a day job. So I think for anyone that's getting into podcasting now, because right now it's kind of the wild west, right? That the, the equipment is accessible. You, there's not a huge financial burden to get over that it's still expensive, but it's really? attainable. Yeah. You know, technology gets cheaper the longer it's around. And I think with a little bit of a skill set, you know, spending some time learning how to edit audio, finding a place, a broom closet, whatever, that you can make your, you know, your audio sound halfway decent. These things are pretty, you know, accessible. But then you have to be willing to really look at yourself. And this is what I, I'm not giving anybody advice that I didn't take myself. When I lost my job at AAF, I did not know if I was worth anything without AAF. I didn't know if I could exist without AAF because I had never existed in a professional capacity as Mistress Carrie without it. I knew Carrie existed without it. Like, it wasn't like I was questioning whether or not I should live. I was questioning whether or not another microphone would be viewed as something worthy for me to get behind without AAF, because it's like a little kid that wants to pick a fight with a big, strong, older brother behind you. Right. And then all of a sudden the day that you want to pick a fight and your big brother's not behind you, you better be ready to fight. And I didn't know, am I going to be able to win that fight without my big brother behind me? And so it was a fear I had to get over myself. Then I had to figure out what am I going to say? What's the show about? Is there enough content to feed it? And is there an audience that wants it? And these are all really hard questions that people have to ask themselves when they get started. And again, if you just want to do it as a hobby and it's something you're fun and you're hanging out, getting drunk with your friends on Friday night and you want to record it and 30 people listen and that makes you happy that's amazing. Keep doing it. Go thousands of episodes. But if you're hoping to grow it, growth requires space. You plant a seed in a little itty bitty pot. It's only going to get so big. So you got to figure out how big's your pot. You got to figure out, are you going to be able to feed it and fertilize it? Are you going to run out of stuff? Do you have access to enough water? And I think sometimes the answer is no. That's why when I started my podcast, it's a rock lifestyle podcast. I wanted the umbrella to be big enough where I could feed it and not just with rock bands. I wanted to be able to talk to other musicians. I wanted to be able to talk to the instrument manufacturers. I wanted to be able to talk to the techs and the roadies. And I wanted to be able to talk to the people who live the lifestyle, whose lives are shaped by those instruments and those bands and those artists. And that's where the military work that I, that I do fits in because those are guys who the rock music feeds what they do. So I wanted to really make sure that my own podcast had a big enough pot to plant a seed in and be aware enough that like, God, I hope I can feed this thing. 
And I still, 108 episodes in, with six episodes lined up already and six guests already lined up and more in the works, I live in fear every day that I'm not going to be able to feed it. I live in fear every day that this plant is going to get pot bound, that I'm not going to have enough water to continue to water it, and then it'll die. And I think if you don't have that fear and you don't have an answer to those questions, I think getting started is hard. And sometimes, you know, if the answer is well, no, it's hard. Well, it, it is hard. And, and to all the points you just mentioned, those are questions that, you know, people I know have answered, I've answered in some form or fashion, right? I've answered. But it, and it's hard on a good day. It's hard, right? And it's hard to look at yourself and criticize your own capabilities and your own worth and whether or not, A, you're good enough to do it and B, if anyone else is going to care. Like, these are soul crushing questions to have answered. Because if someone says no, and do you care if they say no? That's an important thing too. Well, that's the thing, right? This, this craft is different from someone, and, and no, no disparagement here, from a banker or a, a, a heavy equipment operator or a doctor. You can, they do tangible things and, and you don't, we don't. So these are some very like soul searching times you can have behind the microphone or editing this stuff, right? Yeah. And I think here's the beauty of podcasting, right? So you talk about heavy equipment operators and those kind of people that are like, I used to build stages at concerts before I was a radio DJ. And before that, I worked as a fifth generation baker. The idea that you put all this effort in and then you can see your effort come to fruition. That's why I love having a garden. All my effort, there's fruits, literally, pardon the pun, fruits to it. Um, the beauty of podcasting is those heavy equipment operators, there's enough heavy equipment operators out there that if you had a podcast about heavy equipment and you do it the right way, there's an audience for it. Now, is that something that maybe I'm going to spend all my time listening to? I mean, I like heavy equipment. Who doesn't like to get behind a bulldozer and feel like you're a little kid at the beach with toys, right? But is it something I'm going to listen to all the time? Maybe, maybe not. But there's enough people out there that will. And so if you're a contractor, if you're a carpenter, a finished carpenter, a plumber, an electrician, anyone that has this tangible craft, there is a vein for those people in podcasting. I think, I think podcasting allows because it I, I think differently than say a formatted radio station based on heavy equipment talk or whatever it's because podcasting is accessible when when it's convenient for the consumer which is different with radio that well i don't have time to listen to it till sunday night i'll listen to it sunday night whereas the radio station's like hey make sure you're listening tuesday at noon but as a podcaster you know there are going to be those people that want to listen right away then there are going to be those people that listen, you know, they listen three days later because that's the morning they get off and that's when they listen to their stuff. And then there's the people that stumble upon it two years later, right? That find you later. And podcasting really is diverse enough where there is a seat at the table. The size of the table might change, but there's definitely a seat at the table for everybody in one way, shape or form. But the size of the table is a real thing. 
are you narrowly focused so much that there's only so many people that are going to get involved in that conversation? Like I have a lot of friends that are like podcast producers. So they produce podcasts for other people that don't have the skill set that you and I were talking about earlier, the audio editing, the, you know, whatever, but they record podcasts for a very specific minute audience cardiothoracic surgeons talking amongst themselves to share information. Some businesses use podcasts to use it as a promotional tool where, uh, say, an accountant can answer a lot of the same questions, you know, starting January 1st about filing your taxes this year in a little five-minute podcast that they can put on their website that people, when they go there to make an appointment to get their taxes done, can go, well, I'm going to listen to this. This is the changes in the tax code for salaried married couples. And in five minutes, that that accountant can get across to a thousand people whose taxes they're going to do. And if that's why they get into podcasting is just a way to to disseminate information quickly and to use as a promotional tool to maybe bring in some new people that are Googling tax code changes for this calendar year or whatever, that's their goal. Then there's other people that get into podcasting because they want to, you know, have it be a business and they want to be able to sell advertising and they want to grow and have a website and merchandise. And it's different for everybody. That's the you beauty, know? Though. like you said, that's the beauty of it. A hundred percent. And that's, it really is accessible to most people that want to do it. I think you just have to go, okay, well, what are, you know, kind of have some kind of an idea of what your end goal is. And if it's a lofty goal and I am not discouraging you whatsoever, I think with anything to use a military analogy, right? If you're going to go fight a war, you got to have a battle plan. Absolutely. And you got to understand what your resources are and you got to understand who your allies are and you got to understand what the definition of success and failure is. And you got to know all that before you step foot on the battleground, because if you don't, you're already lost. So one of the things that, that I come across in my own self sometimes is I'm doing this. I've got like you, I've got my interviews set up, you know, a month, two months in advance, you know, this person's calling me, you know, and, and not physically, but mentally, sometimes I find myself like, you know, hey, the battery is on empty. The Energizer Bunny is not walking across the screen saying, go Trav. And I, and I do tell people, sometimes you got to unplug somehow and recharge. I can't be the only one feeling that way. And I think I have my recharge, you know, system down pretty good. But do you ever find yourself having to say, you know what, I just need to recharge or how do you stay charged up? I, I literally feel like that every day. Um, I've been pretty vocal about it. So I'm not talking about anything I haven't spoken about already, but the last two and a half years have been really hard for me just as a person. Okay. Everybody went through COVID, but before COVID, I lost my livelihood, a job that I had had in one form or another for 29 years, 22 years full-time professionally with a contract and a salary and all of that, but 29 years in the door. It's the only place I had worked in my entire adult life, basically in radio. I had had, you know, the roadie jobs and all that while I was working part-time at AAF, 
But full-time, it was my job for 22 years. So I think no matter what job you do, I think it's just as shocking if you're full-time active duty military and you retire at 22 years, you're like, where the hell am I? I think anybody that has a job for that long, scary. So for me, um, a few years before I had gotten divorced and, and recovered from that, but then I got laid off and within weeks, COVID hit. The week I got laid off, I found out my then boyfriend, now husband, was getting deployed for the third time in our relationship. And this deployment was going to be between 12 and 18 months overseas. The same week I got laid off. So I got laid off. The next week I found out about the deployment. The next week, COVID. Within a month of that, I found out that my mom had Alzheimer's. And she had been living with me in an in-law apartment of my house for 10 years or at the time, seven years um, in an apartment with a career. She was a nurse for almost 50 years, um, you know, obviously working, driving. She just didn't want to have to upkeep the big house by herself anymore. And so she was like, I'm going to sell my house. I'm going to live in this apartment. I'm going to have the freedom to go to the Cape with my friends in the summer to go to Vegas for long weekends with my friends and, you know, put coins in the wheel of fortune slot machine. I'm going to check all those destinations off my bucket list. My mom volunteered for Habitat for Humanity and traveled all around Central and South America, building hospitals and orphanages for people that needed it. I mean, and, and then all of a sudden this, this woman now has Alzheimer's and the weight of that responsibility was immediate. That, that I am going to be responsible for her care and financial responsibility sooner than later. And I didn't have a career anymore. And my, and my boyfriend was leaving again. And I had already been through two deployments and they're hard. Just dealing with a deployment of a loved one, that's hard. Just dealing with a pandemic, that's hard. Just dealing with getting laid off, that's hard. Just dealing with an Alzheimer's diagnosis of a parent, that's hard. All of that, literally within one month in 2020, was crippling for me. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever it was, physical, all of it. And the idea of eating the elephant one bite at a time is the only way that I could get out of bed. I would make, I'm a list maker. My husband likes to make his lists on giant dry erase boards that he would like to put on every wall in this house because everyone in the military has this affinity for dry erase boards that I don't get. I can simply make a list on a piece of paper and that is sufficient for me, but he needs it big, multiple colors with boxes to check. You're laughing because you probably got one or two in your house. I'm, 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 I'm ordering one. I need one. I, and the computer's not working for me anymore. And yes, when I do a spreadsheet, it's multicolored. Everything's color coded and laid out. Yeah. My calendar looks like that, right? Yep. My iCal is color coded and alerts are set. Like I organize my life that way. And so the way that I got through that incredibly dark time, and this is the time. This is the, the era that we're talking about earlier when I registered my LLC, when I started going in the war room. This is, I learned something really important about myself. I function, unfortunately, this is not a skill anybody wants, but I function really well in crisis. 
I don't know why. I don't know what kind of childhood trauma. I don't understand why I'm better at it than other people in my family, because obviously dealing with, you know, a diagnosis like my mom has in the family, family members have responded to it differently. I don't know why. I, my instinct was to go, okay. Did I cry myself to sleep? Sure. Did I have a few glasses of wine and then cry myself to sleep? Sure. Did I wake up the next day to a pad of paper with a list of like, okay, today I'm going to do four things. I'm going to take four bites out of the elephant today. And if I could cross those four things off, that sense of accomplishment for me that day, and it didn't matter how small. I mean, I'm talking, do my laundry. I'm talking grocery shop. I'm talking dust the living room. You know, fill out the initial application for the LLC. Like these were all weighted equally on that list. Little victories. And, you know, call the vet to make an appointment for Wednesday. If I can just cross that off my list tomorrow, that feeling of accomplishment got me to, to the next day to, to, to make another list. And I had to tell myself, okay, if you don't get to one thing, and you bump that thing to the next day, like you don't get to hate yourself over that. You don't get to beat yourself up over that. But I'm not going to lie to you and say that it has been easy. And even now, because I'm not where I want to be, right? My company's not where I want it to be. My podcast is not where I want it to be. My career is not where I want it to be. My house is not where I want it to be. My personal life is not where I want. Nothing is where I want it to be, but I'm, I'm on the path. I'm, I'm, I'm moving so, sometimes the train is slow, but I feel like I'm on the tracks. But there are days where it is so hard to get out of bed that, that I have to give myself the pep talk to not call in sick, to not send the email and say, can we reschedule today's interview for tomorrow? And I... Part of it for me is that makes me that I'm really motivated by anger, which again is a skill I don't know why I have. But then I get mad at the thing that's making me sad. And I'm like, I'm letting you control me. And getting mad at it gets me out of bed. And then there's the realization that, okay, so now I'm not just going to kick one thing at the end of the day to tomorrow's list. Now I'm going to kick everything on today's list to tomorrow's list. And tomorrow I'm going to be twice as bogged down. And now you're in the quicksand. Because tomorrow it's going to be twice as hard to get out of bed. And then all of those eight things, today it's four, tomorrow it's eight, the next day it's 12. And it's just exponentially worse. I find a way to like bargain with myself sometimes and go, okay, I know there's four things. Two of those things, I can, I can bump those to next week. They're not, I can call the chimney sweep next Monday. I don't have to do that tomorrow. But these things are, I, I know this person that scheduled the interview with me is making time for me. And I don't want to let them down and take advantage and squander and, and, you know, belittle the commitment that they've made to me to, to do that today. So 
if I can just get that done today, if I can just get up and make myself a cup of coffee, if I can, you know, obviously that motivation for me now with my mother's illness being as progressed, I think any, I look at it in a different way as like being a parent, right? You can be a new mom, which I've never had that experience, but I can imagine that you're tired and your baby's crying. And it's like, what are you not going to get up and feed it and change the diaper? Of course you are. You don't, you don't have the energy, but you find it because you have to. Some days it's just because I have to. But I can tell you that, that, that recharge, you know, specifically in the last six months, because I've been physically dealing with it, with a, with an injury in my shoulder. And I know you've been nursing injuries back too. that the simplest things are hard because physically you can't even get out of bed without pain. And a lot of the things I do to recharge, like you're talking about skydiving, riding my motorcycle, gardening, you know, all those things require a certain amount of physical strength and activity that I haven't been been capable of. You know, sometimes um, getting away for a weekend, just getting myself out of my environment, but with COVID hard, um, you know, making arrangements for my mom hard, wanting to spend time with my husband because he has a way of motivating me and helping me when I'm sad. He's nine hours away in the Middle East. He's not there to help me get out of bed that day. He's not there to give me that, that boost that I need. There, I have not been able to find one to go back to your question and a really long-winded answer for you, I don't have a foolproof one thing that does it for me. It, it really is grasping at the nearest life preserver that day. There might be five in the water, but where's the closest one? Even if it's the smallest one, is it just going to help me a little bit to then get me to the next, to then get me to the next? But I hate that feeling like, you know, you conquer one thing, like you get that one thing checked off your list and then six more things get added to it that day. And you're like underwater. And I can only speak for myself that especially recently, the news and things that are happening in the world, those things are having, especially this week, have been having unbelievably powerful negative impact on my physical and mental health. And I've seen this meme a lot and I, and I, I love the concept of it that if it's not going to matter in five years, don't spend more than five minutes worrying about it. And I feel like lately all of the things to worry about are going to matter in five years. But I, I don't feel like I'm worried and being kept up at night by things that don't matter. I don't feel like any of the things that stress me out to the point where I'm having nightmares at night. That's how I know when I'm really stressed out is when I have nightmares. I either can't fall asleep because usually I can sleep. I have a great sleep regimen and I can usually fall asleep really quickly. But if I have insomnia or if I have nightmares when I'm sleeping, I know the stress is getting to me. Those are like red flags just for me. Um, I feel like lately, all of the things that are, are really stressing me out, they do not fit into that. They're not going to matter in five years. Don't worry about it for five minutes. I think everything that's keeping me up at night right now matters in five years. And that overwhelming sense of weight and burden um, 
has been really hard for me lately. It's, you know, it's like, I, I feel like, you know, how they used to kill people in Salem in the 1600s with the, with the rocks. That's how I feel a lot. And, um, you know, I think luckily for me, earlier in my life, I had things happen that required me to really learn skills in mental health, in um, coping, in, in being able to communicate my feelings and to be able to really trust the people in my life to be able to say, I'm having a hard time. I need help. These are things that I have been telling veterans in my work with veterans to do for years. And I had to learn how to do it myself. And that sucks. Sucks. Oh, but, it, it, it was brutal last year sometimes having to ask for help. And yeah. I, had to, I had to learn to swallow some pride real quick because sucks. I'm like, you know what? If I don't ask for help, I'm not in a good place. So I certainly understand what you're saying there but for all these challenges and all the hurdles and all the the energy that that because the reason i kind of ask that question is i don't think people appreciate the amount of energy and focus it takes to to talk to somebody and try to you know get what you prepared to them and then get out of them what you kind of want to learn about them people don't understand or appreciate that enough i don't think I, this is the analogy that I use to try to, to explain it to people that, that don't do this because it is a skill set. If you're wondering why your electrician charges you $120 an hour, it's not because it's taking $120 worth of effort for them to come over and fix the short in the outlet in your bathroom. That's a $5 part from Home Depot and six minutes of their day. What you're paying for is the 30 years they put in so that it only takes six minutes to change the outlet. It, it looks easy to watch an electrician wire something, but the amount of effort and schooling and experience it took to make it look that easy to a layman, that's the skill, that's the effort. So I've had people in my everyday life that are like, must be nice. You work five hours a day on the radio. You just sit around and talk. Right. You don't know what it's like to work for a living. And I'm like, okay, first of all, I grew up baking bread in a bakery in July. Okay. When it was 120 degrees in the room and 400 degrees in the oven don't tell me that I don't know what it's like to work for a living when I got a wrench in my pocket and I'm building a stage in August with no shade at Gillette Stadium. And then I got to pack it all down at the end of the day and put it in a truck and drive it to Albany and build it again the next day. I know what it's like to work. Okay, first of all. Second of all, to make those four hours or five hours on the radio sound effortless, that's 24 years of full-time experience. That's four years of broadcasting school. 
That is countless years of an internship and a part-time job where I surrounded myself with people that were really good at the job I wanted, that I asked a lot of questions, that I listened, that I paid attention, that I took advice that people were willing to stop their day to give me. If you listen to my radio show now, if you listen to my podcast and you think that that's easy, that's 31 years of effort. That is 30 years of a licensed electrician learning on the job a trick, a this, a that, being an apprentice, learning under a master, figuring it out, staying on top of changes in technology, changes in trends, keeping up your certifications, learning how to manage a schedule, learning how to maintain a customer base, leaving a customer's house happy, running a business, figuring out how to make sure you're spending less than you're making. Like, these are all things that take a really long time. That's like walking up to a Marine sniper and going, that's easy. I can do that. The target's not even moving. What person would you say that like, no, but, but a Marine sniper could say to a radio DJ, well, that looks easy. And that's the first thing I do is spin it back around. I'm like, literally you, you pull you use your index finger to go pew, pew. That's your job. How hard can that be? How it's hard? A, it's a ludicrous thing to say. And it's people, insulting. But, but people say it all the time. All the time. It's like looking at a chef that has cooked and honed their craft, that has educated themselves. That's literally looking at someone like Julia Child and going, what? You made pancakes? What's the big deal? What? What? And I'm not saying my job is equivalent or as important as a Marine sniper or an electrician. I'm not, I'm not le- saying they're all equal. I'm, it's an analogy to show the effort. That's like going to a farmer and going, yeah, I got some flower pots on the back deck. It's not that hard. Huh? It is. It is. So despite the challenges, despite the growth period needed, you know, where you started out two years ago, over two years ago, and your military, not your military career. Well, I'm going to throw that in there because, you know, you, I want to say the word so bad. Anyway, um, I what? depend upon him as damn it. I, I, I didn't want to call you. No, you want to say it. I know, but I'm not going to. Um, what is, let's, let's close it down like this. I'd like to know, through the last two years, what's a couple of moments or a moment you're like, wow, this is all working. And I'm really like happy I did this. And I, I feel like I'm on the right path. And then, then tell us about the future. Well, I mean, I think, I think anytime anyone has a reaction to what you've done, right? So like, whenever people talk to me about how much WAF meant to them, that makes me feel like it was all worth it. And like, it it was as special for them as it was for me, right? You telling me today how much that frivolous decision I made to go live on my phone that night 
and what it's snowballed into, how it's impacted your life and what an important thing this family of war room people is to you. That is an example of something that makes me go, okay, I'm doing it like I'm on the right path. When I have a serious conversation, which is something I couldn't do a lot on the radio because I didn't have the time, but I've had some really serious conversations with artists that, that were more than just their new song or their tour or whatever. You know, I'll reference a conversation like uh, Morgan Rose from Seven Dust who talked about um, being suicidal and, and literally being, at, you know, moments away from, from making a, a decision that he couldn't undo. And how he reached out for help with his mom. Like that was something, A, I didn't know about someone I've known for decades. And B, I knew it was going to resonate with the people listening because they're like, they look at a guy like Morgan as being somebody that's got it all. How could they possibly be unhappy? You're a rock star, right? Like, but we all have these things and people look at me that way. If they don't know about, you know, if they didn't know my husband was deployed, if they didn't know about, um, you know, my mom's diagnosis or my shoulder injury that made it impossible for me to use my right arm for six months. Like they didn't know about those things. It just looks like, wow, she got a dream job. She's on the radio. She's got a podcast and a web like, wow, that, that, her life is awesome. We all are going through things. And so when I get feedback from people that go, oh my God, I loved that interview. Oh my God. I didn't know that about that person. Um, I love it when I'm when I'm doing an interview and I ask, I mean, you know, when you interview people, the people you've part of the challenge is finding things to ask them that they haven't been asked before. Right. And when you're talking to, to the people I talk to every day, they do interviews all the time. So when I ask someone something and they go, oh, my God, that's such a good question. Or I say something to them or ask them a question and it makes them laugh like a whole heart, like a real laugh or, or when they say like, Oh my God, no one's ever asked me that before. I go, wow. Okay. All the research I did was, was worth it because I'm getting to something that maybe someone else hadn't, you know, it's like you're mining for gold. It's you're not going to find gold in a place that seven other people have dug a hole. You're going to find it in the place where you got to put forth 10 times the effort to get down to where the gold might be without having any idea if there's gold there or not. But at least you're going to go, I'm going to go over there and try because that over there looks like people haven't dug over there before. And in order to do that, you got to you got to know the person. You got to be so familiar with them that that even if you've never met them before, but you're just researching and putting in the time not only to figure out about them and what their careers are, are where they're going. But I would always, especially like on the radio, when they were coming in, in person, I would always like, look up the small things, you know, like how they like their coffee. Are they coming from a show the night before or was yesterday a day off? Because that's going to determine whether or not they're rested sometimes. Did I, do I know they just drove from Cleveland last night and then they're walking into my studio in Boston. They're probably going to be tired. So maybe having some food for them. And if I look on their Instagram and they're constantly putting up pictures of the meals they love and I see that they really love pizza, then I'm going to go and get the best pizza from the best pizza place in Boston and have it waiting for them. And they immediately walk in 
and I've got their favorite soda or some cold water for them. And this pizza, these are small things to have a pizza and some drinks waiting for somebody. No, it's, it might seem small, but it's huge. Right. Because it sets the tone for the whole interview because they're now cares about me. Right. Yes. That they took five minutes out of their day to go, Oh, wow. They know that I like pepperoni pizza. That's my favorite. And it's not hard to find out what kind of pizza they like. Most people are taking pictures of the pizza they like and putting it on Instagram. I know exactly what Mike Shue likes on his Italian subs because he's constantly taking pictures of his Italian subs and putting them up on Instagram or doing lives or, or I listen to other interviews. Like that's something I do a lot before I interview someone. I go and listen to the interviews that they did this week or the interviews that they've done in the past with other interviewers, or even I'll even go back and listen to my old interviews that I did with them because I forget the questions I asked them two years ago. Well, like today, if I may, I, I kind of wanted to go not strictly, I wanted to get behind the, the curtain, if you will, and not just ask you about the last person you interviewed. I wanted to know the mechanics of getting to interview that person. And I think, I think that's where I was going today. And I think that's where you have to go, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, you can't ask the same questions because there's a certain tune out from the person you're talking to that you got to, in any conversation, it doesn't matter if you're interviewing them or you're hanging out at a barbecue with somebody, you can tell when they're not interested in what you're talking about anymore. Cause they start looking around and they're like, well, I gotta go to the bathroom Ooh, they just brought out, you know, more desserts. I'm going to go check out the dessert table. Whereas if someone's super engaged in what they're talking about, they don't care that they just brought out new desserts to the dessert table. And if they have to pee, they don't care. They'll hold it. You can tell by their body language. Are they sitting forward? Are they engaged? Are they sitting back? Are they looking around? Are they distracted? And people appreciate effort regardless of what we're talking about. They appreciate people going like, um, say you're a carpet cleaner and you're going to somebody's house to clean the carpet and you get there and the person cleaned out the room and took everything off the floor. They cleared a path for you. Effort. Does that make your job easier? Yes. I know tomorrow the guy's coming to clean my oil burner for my furnace. So before he gets here, I'm going to make sure that the storage unit or the, the, the room in my house where all my stuff is for my heater and my hot water heater and all that, that the light bulb's going to work above it, that there's a clear path to get there because I know how much room he's going to need to get in there and do his job. And he doesn't want to be standing around waiting, trying to move my shit to get to my oil burner because he's got eight other oil burners to clean tomorrow. And what happens to his day if every single person doesn't clear out the space around the oil burner? By number six, he's just done. Done. Do you think if I'm number eight on his list, my oil burner is going to get cleaned as good as it should? Do you think he's going to go the extra mile if he sees something that maybe would require a little more attention, that he's going to put that effort in to fix it too? Because I'm number eight of the annoying people that didn't clean a, clear a path. Like, think about the guys that deliver oil in the wintertime. Oh. That don't shovel the access to the delivery pipe. Those poor guys. You know what I'm saying? It's 20 below zero, and they got to have a shovel because the idiots that are running out of oil couldn't even take time out of their day to shovel a path for them. It doesn't matter what you do for a living. 
it's that little bit of preparation and effort that you go. And it's something that the color coded calendar, like I'm literally looking at my calendar for tomorrow. And I know that I have my oil burners getting clean tomorrow. Got to check that off the list. I know I got to do the radio show tomorrow. I got, I know I got to do a show for the network tomorrow. I know that there's a guy coming to give me an estimate to do some repair work on my house. I know what time all those things need to get done. And then I have my to-do list of the things that are my personal goals for the day. So I know if the guy's coming at noon to clean my oil burner, I can't wake up at 1155. And like, I, I'm going to plan my day around it. Some people think that my organization and my color coded calendar, that it's anal, that it's like, whatever. I feel less stressed. Yes. I feel like, like the, I joke all the time that I'm like a doomsday prepper, right? I talk about it all the time on my show that like, I've got my zombie closet, that there's a rucksack packed with survival equipment that I keep in my car, especially when I was commuting back and forth to Boston in the dead of winter in the middle of the night, that I had a shovel and boots. And I didn't do those things because I was paranoid and stressed. I did those things to be prepared because then I didn't stress. Hallelujah. Precious <laughs> sister. Hallelujah. Yeah. And, I'm, I'm... and some people, and I think it's a personality type. Some people, the idea of the prepping in case of emergency, that it stresses them out because it forces them to think about what could happen. That is a certain type of person it that is. cannot be reminded about how awful the world is. And I'm not, I'm not preaching on either side of the gun issue, but I'll give this analogy. Sometimes the idea that people want to carry guns in case of an emergency reminds those people that don't want the guns around that the world can be a really bad place. And I think the people that want to carry the guns need to be reminded that the thought of the need to carry it for those other people, that is a source of stress for them. They don't like to be reminded, even though there's a certain amount of self-awareness that they need to have, but you got to remember where they're coming from. If they're the survivor of a violent attack, if they're the survivor of abuse, to constantly remind these people that someone could break into their house and rape their wife and kill and kidnap their children, that reminder does, they can't get out of bed with that constant reminder. Because they're already overcoming something to get out of bed every day themselves. Like, we're all looking at things differently. Some people want to have the gun because they're aware that something could be really bad could happen. And that they want to be prepared for that eventuality if it's going to happen. But there's those people that are like, are we really at the point in our society where that's what's required to survive? And can we do something to make our society better so you don't feel like you need to carry a gun every day? Maybe it's not as necessary. That is a good point for the counter argument. That is there something else we can do? Because I'm a gun owner. I have my license. I'm trained. I am a supporter, but I also understand 
that there's people that maybe if we had done some work to keep them from getting access, we would have some less funerals. There's everybody is going to look at this situation differently. And rather than getting up in your silo and understanding how it is that you're looking at these situations, maybe we could alleviate some issues. When it comes to the whole prepping thing, it's very basic for me. I'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have. That goes with firearms, knives, any kind of other self-defense thing or just. And it comes from experience because of your military career. Well, true, too. True, too. Absolutely. You've been in situations where you're like, fuck, I needed that knife. Wish I could have had it. You know, sometimes in Mexico, I'm like, wow, okay, um, we are not in Kansas anymore. Yeah. But I have learned, right? God love them. I got a lot of military friends and you guys know I love you. But you guys, but you guys will have like all the guns and bullets, right? Yes. But, but like, and, and the, uh, and the counter argument I know is, well, with the guns and bullets, I can get anything else. Right. Which, okay, fine. But if you don't know, you need something, all the guns and bullets aren't going to make you think to go get it. Like I couldn't believe the number of people before COVID or even at the beginning of COVID that, were completely fixated on the guns or like whatever, but didn't think like, maybe I should call in another prescription for the heart medication that I need to take every day because maybe the pharmacy is going to run out or maybe they're going to close. Yeah. There, there was Look a at couple the people pa- that had all the toilet paper. There was a couple guys in our community who had that problem. Yep. Yep. Full arsenal, full arsenal, like Travis, you know, I, I can loan you something if you, if you, if, if you're not happy, I'm like, I'm, I'm good, man. I, I got mine. No toilet paper. It's like, this sucks. And then they'll go, well, with the guns, I'll go get toilet paper. But if nobody around you has any, your guns, you can't wipe your ass with it. It doesn't work. Not in the desert. It does not work. You know what I'm saying? So it's like just a little, there are, there are other things. Like there are a lot of guys, right. That are like, I'm going to stockpile all the guns because I'm going to protect my family. And they got a house full of women. And the women are going, like right now, most guys don't know there's a tampon shortage. Did you know there's a tampon shortage? I did not. Okay. There so, is? For yes, real? Yes. Go to a store right now. Go online and try to find tampons. Get out. It's like baby formula. It's amazing how all the things we keep having shortages of somehow affect women more than men, but I digress. But <laughs> like baby formula, tampons, but like you're a guy. Why would you know there was a tampon shortage? But if you're in a house full of women and you're prepping and you're trying to figure it out and you don't have that stuff stockpiled, guess what? Life's going to suck for you. Well, well, I will say this. I I work, my my boss is a a female and I have a lot of female colleagues. And I figured out real quick for next time, stock nail polish, nail polish remover, hair products because you know when the when the beautician wasn't open they got they got in a bad place real quick mistress i buy my hair dye in bulk because it's cheaper and i was able to dye my hair at home because i had hair dye here and i had nail polish here so i would be on the war room and people go did you go get your hair done why are your nails look good and i'm like because i know how to dye my hair and i know how to paint my nails so i did it at home i was bored i did it i didn't want to look like You know, there were a lot of people, there were a lot of single guys I knew 
that couldn't get takeout, that didn't know how to make a meal at home alone because they couldn't cook for themselves. They were running out of ramen noodles and they're like, I order takeout for two or three meals a day. And I, how am I supposed to cook for myself? I'm like, afford that one. Well, if you're a single guy and you got a good job, but then I'm like, how is that gun stockpile, dude? Oh, what are you eating them bullets? It's on point. Reloaders all set. Hollows, Target, the whole nine yards. All yeah, priorities, and baby. And you got ketchup in your fridge and a salad dressing and nothing else because you didn't think to go grocery shopping. Like that, that is why we men do need you all in our lives, whether we want to admit it or not. And and that's what makes us and, and that's why when people make blanket statements about diversity in the workplace, um, opening up, you know, branches of the military to women or, you know, facets of each branch of the military to women. I, I say this, like, think about the truck that got stuck under the bridge, the famous analogy. And it took the little kid to say, let some air out of the tires and you'll clear it. Sometimes it is the diverse life experience and the difference in upbringing and, and, and life lessons that are learned that solves the problem. It's not all brawn. It's not all big muscles and it's not all big bullets. Sometimes those things are a hundred percent. I'm not saying we don't need them, but you know, I can tell you from my experience, a lesson I learned in Afghanistan. Um, I went and visited, visited a village in the, in the mountains of Afghanistan. And the U.S. military, special forces, all dudes, rolls into this remote village. And they see women walking four miles down a dirt road with buckets to get water. And all the guys go, let's dig them a well. We'll solve that problem. Then the women don't have to walk four miles to get water. So they go in and they dig a well. And what happens? The well got sabotaged. And at first they thought the well got sabotaged by the terrorists. So they went in and fixed the well. And then the well got sabotaged again. And all the while they thought it was the men sabotaging the well. It wasn't the men? No. See, Travis, I'm even surprised that I'm getting you with this one. And I, and I was there. I saw it. It was the women sabotaging the well. You know why? Because the only time the women were allowed out of the house unsupervised was that four mile walk to get water. And as soon as the men came into the village and built a well, the women lost any freedom at all to leave the house. So the women would rather walk the four miles to get the water, to be able to have a modicum of freedom, to be able to gather with other women without male supervision. And walking four miles on a dirt road with buckets of water was worth it. And it took women with the military to go into that village because the women were the only one allowed to go into the room where all the women were for the women in the village to go, we blew up the well. Because these stupid American men came into our village and took away the only chance we had to get out of the house. I, I did have an officer tell me, um, Marine Corps guy tell me it was a real comeuppance when he realized his little E3, E4 corporal, Lance Corporal could go to the women and they knew everything that was going on versus his, you know, coming in there and talking to the guys with his Oakley's on, like he's all the, the big. And the women aren't culturally allowed to even talk to you. Right. And 
That has always been my argument when people have said things like, we can't open up special forces to women because they aren't going to be able to carry the weight. They aren't going to be able to keep up physically. And my argument was always, is that the only thing you need to be good at? What if the woman speaks Farsi and no one else in the unit does? What if that woman was able to gain intel from the women in the village, like you said, because they know everything. They hear everything and say nothing. Is that skill set not just as important or at least not maybe not just as important, but important enough that it's worth having that person there? It. I, th- I think in some ways that's where the military is going to have to go. You're going to have to look at the person's skills and their merit in those skills. You you have standards and, I, and I'm all for standards. 100%. But yeah. also, I mean, I'll use a different example real quick. The military is finding out really quickly that if they don't do something different, they're losing on the cybersecurity front. I'm a cybersecurity. 100%. So they're having to think about different ways to get, the people with those skills who aren't gun shooters, PFT guys, you know, jocks to work with them. It's, it's a really, it's going to change. I think in the next 15 years, absolutely. Well, the army just this week changed the tattoo. I couldn't believe that. Because I have to, this was my argument when they didn't want gays in the military and they broke down by statistic, what MOS is were most popular for homosexual people or people in the LGBTQ plus, whatever my sister who's in there calls it the alphabet mafia, like whatever you want to call it. I I got nothing but love. It's pride month, all of it. But the most popular MOS was interpreters. Doesn't surprise me. And we're fighting a war where we need to be able to speak Arabic. And there were thousands of them that were gay. Is it worth with the end goal, right? Cause we, you and I were just talking about what's your end goal to bring it back to a question you asked me, you want to win the war? Well, the, the, the six foot four, I can bench 450 seal that can kick a door down accurate. If he doesn't know what the people are saying, are we going to win the war? Well, I just go back to what Gary Barry Goldwater said, you know, he's like, look, I don't. And, and, and he was very famous for this because it was a big deal in Arizona. You know, when that, all happened with the log cabin Republicans and other things. He's like, we need, we, I have no problem putting a, a homosexual behind a typewriter or a gun. As long as they can fight, I don't care. And that's kind of the, the, the thing that I went through in the Marine Corps with the don't ask, don't tell. We, we sent people home that were qualified radar operators for that system because why? Yeah. It, it made no sense to me. And, and people got sent home just because they got accused of it. Yep. Which, like, I thought, like, there was no due process. Nope. They just, the the mere accusation of it was enough to ruin that person's career and erase years of effort and training and a skill set that was so desperately needed. And it's the same thing that I say to people when they talk about guns and they talk about red flag laws and they talk about all that. I'm like, but if the mere accusation of it is going to get someone's guns taken away. If the mere accusation of a sexual assault is going to get someone, you know, rubber stamped as a, as a criminal, like regardless of what the accusation is, we got to be careful 
and you can't throw out the baby with the bath water on it. And as we are, and we're all learning this, transitioning from what we consider to be quote unquote traditional warfare, you know, um, we, we got to be able to keep up. And all those people that might not be able to do a hundred pull-ups because they spent their entire adolescence at a computer. Sometimes those are the guys we need to win the war. And how do they get in there? How does that, how does that happen? And the same thing when you are, you know, I, I, there was a third trip overseas that I was supposed to make that, that got canceled the week I was supposed to leave in 2017 in November, I was supposed to uh, go and get embedded with green berets. And it was a trip that I didn't talk about because it wasn't something that I was allowed to talk about ahead of time. I worked on it for months and it was all planned and the trip was going to happen. I was supposed to leave on Friday and Monday, the trip got canceled. And one of the guys that was in the unit, special forces guys that, that I was supposed to be embedded with was a local guy. And he brought me back a bunch of flags because come to find out after long after the fact that I was supposed to fly into Jordan alone. And these guys were going to pick me up with only what I could carry. And they were going to train me for two to three days on what I needed to know in an undisclosed location. And then they were going to take me to work with them. That's all I knew. I was getting on the plane with that amount of information. I had a phone call with the Sergeant Major. I, I went through my own proper channels to find out as much about this unit as I could to make sure it was all legit. Cause it's kind of a trust fall for me. Like, Hey, get on a plane, you know, go to Jordan. Some guy's going to pick you up and then nobody's going to know where you are. And you're going to be, you can't even bring a producer with you. Okay. That I, I was going to do that. Long story short. Um, the trip got canceled. Come to find out the unit was in Syria. They were fighting, they were fighting ISIS. The trip got canceled because of some last minute, shifts and things and and the the burden quote unquote burden of me like they 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 could not guarantee basic amounts of safety but one of the guys when they came home from that deployment he brought me a bunch of stuff that i have in the war room and one of the things he brought me is a flag from the ypjs do you know who they are i've heard of them yes they're the all-female marksman yep. and fighting force that was hunting isis yep and they were ISIS's most feared adversary, not because they were the most skilled or lethal, but because the worst thing that could happen to you as an ISIS fighter is that you got killed by women. Yep. And there were thousands of these women. And so when you think about it like that, were they the best marksmen? Were they the biggest? Were they the strongest? Didn't have to be. They were the most feared. And that's something that maybe a, another guy might not have thought of. And these women brought something to the table in the fight against ISIS that no one else could. Absolute, total fear. Like ISIS guys, they're not afraid of shit, but they don't want to die by the hands of a woman. That's the worst thing that could possibly happen to them. So in that instance, get all the women out there. It's unrestricted warfare. It's unrestricted warfare. And it yeah. kind of... And, and it kind of leads into the whole thing on the veteran side of the house. A lot of, a lot of my fellow brothers and sisters, brothers, excuse me, 
we can't have her, you know, part of our group. She's not a veteran. She didn't serve and she's a female. I'm like, look, and I've said this, she might not have ever carried a gun or a pack before, but you know what? She's a project manager and she's certified. Let me tell you what you got to do to get that. It's a year of your life dedicated to that craft just to get one of the certs. You could use her to keep your stuff on track because, oh yeah, you've missed three deliverables. So I, I whether it's in the military or outside the military, I, I just want people to understand that we all bring different things to the table and a good leader or leaders will know how to use all those. So absolutely, I'm, 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 I'm definitely you know, on the same wavelength. I mean, look at the discoveries that have been made by accident, right? They didn't invent Viagra because that was the goal. That was an accident. They, they didn't invent Botox to cure migraines. They invented it for wrinkles and then found out, wait a minute. Women that are getting this put in their faces who have migraines, their migraines are going away. Sometimes there's a tool in your toolbox. Why? I guarantee you, you have a junk drawer in your, in your kitchen because everybody does. I do. Right? Yes, I do. And it's just all this rando shit. And you don't know how you're going to use it or why you're saving it. But when you got a problem, where's one of the first places you go to solve it? The junk drawer. Because there's, because it might not be a traditional use for what that thing is, is for. How many people have done a hard reset on an electronic gadget because they unfolded a paperclip and put it in there? That's not why a paperclip was designed, but it fits that little hole perfectly, don't it? Perfectly. So sometimes having the resources around sometimes you 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 don't have to know what you're going to use it for sometimes it's a it's an in the moment in the battle thing and you're like wait a second i got this and it could help you know well i think i think that's you know one of the things that you know, still draws me to a lot of what you do is there's these different when in the, in the realm of podcasting, you work with veterans and just your work as a professional, like, wait a minute, there's different tool sets she's acquired over the years. You know, someone can't really see what you do, but you can hear it. You can see certain things in an interview when someone's you're talking to somebody and I'm like, okay, she, wow. She pulled that out that way. And you pick up on that. And, and those have been acquired over time. So are you telling me that, hey, just because you don't have an apparent use for it right now, whether it's a person in, in the military or professionally, don't just discard what they might have to say or bring to the table? Especially, look, there's that saying, you don't know what you don't know. Right. You, you, can, you can go into an interview as prepared as you can be. You can go into a battle as prepared as you can be, but every single person, no matter what it is that they do for work, has had something come up that they've either never seen before or no matter how prepared they were like, how could you possibly prepare for that? Right. And every, every once in a while, somebody slips something past the goalie, 9-11. Okay. We had all of the fucking ability in the world to keep those guys off that plane. There's a reason why that plane crashed in Shanksville, because they had the knowledge that the first planes didn't, that there was no hostage situation that was coming, that this was a suicide mission. 
That's why the people in Shanksville did what they did because they knew there was no getting out for them. That's why the people on the first planes didn't fight back when it was quote unquote only box cutters because they didn't see the end game. They didn't understand because it had never been done before. So when you are putting a team together, in my opinion, and it's not just a military thing, because again, I'm very painfully aware I'm a civilian, but I've also spent the last 31 years getting thrust in situations, especially live with my ass hanging out, that you got to figure out how to fix and get around and move past in real time. To me, I've learned that the best way to be able to do that, the zig and the zag, the adjust, the, the, the move past it and get around it, is to have as diverse a skill set in yourself and a diverse skill set of a diverse team around you. And I think the military is learning that. I think we're learning that painfully slowly with the government. I think we've learned it in so many different ways that it takes the little kid to tell you to take the air out of the tires. The problem is when you do, when you solve a problem the same way every time, over and over and over again, you can be lulled into the sense that that's the only way the problem can be solved. And that's fine as long as it works. But what happens the day that you go to solve the same problem the same way and it doesn't work? What happens when you become immune to the same antibiotic and a, and a virus or, or, or a, an infection or whatever comes up that's a super virus or infection that's impervious to everything else you've treated it with? If you're not constantly doing research to figure out what could come, then, you know, I, I just watched on the plane um, Bridge of Spies. Did you ever see that movie with Tom Hanks? I didn't see that one, no. Oh, it's such a fantastic movie. It's a true story. It happened during, um, you know, the Cold, Cold, War. Cold War. Yeah. And that they, that they captured a Russian spy and they put him on trial in the United States and people wanted to execute him. And Tom Hanks' character was an insurance lawyer that was brought in to basically be a lawyer to show that we're going to do due process and give the American judicial system so we could show the world that, that even though this guy 100% was a traitor and he was a spy for Russia and they caught him. And he got convicted anyway because there was overwhelming evidence. And then this guy had to go in and argue why they shouldn't give him the death penalty. And everybody was screaming for this guy to be executed. And, the, and Tom Hanks's character was an insurance lawyer. And he said, listen, I work in insurance. If you kill this guy, you got nothing. It's only a matter of time before they get one of our guys. And if this guy lives, you've got something to bargain with to get our guy back. And that was the argument he made in court. He won. And shortly thereafter, one of our spy planes got shot down and an American pilot was captured. And the bridge of spies is about the bridge where they made the, 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 the swap that he negotiated and went to Germany and went back and forth through the wall to, to negotiate the swap. But he was right. And he saw something because of his years and experience with insurance that no one else, and he took a lot of shit for it. His family was threatened. This is all a true story because nobody understood why you wouldn't want to kill that guy. And he was like, okay, well, you kill him, it's over. But then expect our guys to get killed in reverse. 
And he wasn't asking him to show like mercy. He was just like, let's just hold the guy. And he was right. And this guy, I don't want to give, you know, the whole, I mean, it's a true story. You can Google it, but he was proven right more than once. I'll say that. And it's not the only end job he ended up doing for the government, which was not his career. He was a very successful insurance attorney in New York City. But his skill set forced him to look at a problem in a different way than the military, the U.S. government, and its entire populace saw. He saw the need for the policy, the insurance policy, the, the what if. And, and I think there are so many instances where having that person that can offer a completely different perspective is invaluable in the moment. But you can't get their perspective if they're not in the room. Which which leads us back to, you know, we're here now, very different perspectives and backgrounds. I mean, you've forgotten more about this than I know. Um, we're winding this down. And, and you, you know, I'd like to think in, in the six years, because this is dropping on the birthday of this show. So crazy. Six years. It is six years. It's not 30 like yourself, but it is six years. Well, no, but six years and 300 episodes is a massive accomplishment. Well, thank you. Thank you. But I think you're, you're on to something. I mean, I didn't, I didn't make growth in this until I got those different perspectives. If I had listened to just the military crowd and what they wanted and expected, I wouldn't have done certain things when I was told, Hey, you know, a lot of, a lot of women will listen to your show. You need to, to, to think about that. Make the make the content relatable to them. And I'm like, nobody else is doing that. We'll give it a try. So I think I think you're right. I think you're right. And as we go on into the future, um, I hope to keep doing that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's look at the interviews that I do with the military, right? Yeah. How many times have you heard me stop a member of the military or a veteran and ask them to explain the acronym, the acronym that just rolled off their tongue? All the time. Because I know that as soon as I stop asking them to do that, all the people that don't know what that means, they've begun to tune out now because they're not included in the conversation anymore. And I want those people to be able to listen and learn a new perspective from, I, I want them to understand what this veteran's experience is so that when these civilians go to vote on measures when it comes to the military and resources and benefits and all of these things that they might go, oh, well, I remember when Carrie interviewed that person and, and they started talking about all of these things, rapid fire about the VA and this and that, that she slowed them down. And, and, but I don't do it in a way I'm very careful to not then bore the military guys that are listening. They're like, of course I know what that means. Oh, I don't want to listen anymore because this is, she's now she's just talking to the civilians too. Right. You have to do it in a way where you're like, look, I understand that there's a part of the audience that for me to use a music analogy, I know there's a certain amount of them that play guitar. So when I start talking about guitar tone with certain people or they start talking about tubes for their amp or they start talking about certain strings or, or like whatever it is. And they start using, if drummers start talking about polyrhythms and all of this stuff that you start getting into the weeds of their speciality. But I always try to stop them. When I interviewed Mike Mangini from Dream Theater, who's arguably one of the greatest drummers on the planet, I every once in a while I just slow him down and go, hold on a second. 
Let's yeah. not leave behind all the people that don't play drums because they don't understand your shorthand, but they watch you from the audience. How are they going to recognize what you're talking about now? And then you go, oh, okay, well, I'm sitting at the drum. So let me show you. It's the difference between this and this. And all of a sudden, all those people that aren't drummers are back in the conversation. Light bulbs going off. Yeah, absolutely. And they learn something. And it's the same thing. It doesn't matter the content. And I'm not just talking about podcasts. I'm talking about all of us in life that I've learned skills that I've been forced to about wiring, about audio processing, about audio editing, that when I was at AAF, I had a guy for that. Something broke in the studio. I called the engineer. They came up, fixed it. I didn't have to, I didn't have to know how to fix it. But building my studio... And being the same person that records it, edits it, it, you know, does the interview, posts it online, an interview at AAF before, it was my job to prep it and ask questions. If I had problems editing it, I had a guy. If I had problems getting it to sound good, there was a humming in it, I had a guy. If I had a problem getting it uploaded on the website, I had the web guy. I don't have any of those guys anymore. So you adapted. You had to adapt. You had to overcome. You had to be that simper Gumby. Yeah. But I also had to understand the value of all of those skills that all those other people I used to rely on had. Yeah. Because without all of them, you know, like. I love analogies. It's sometimes the only way to get people to understand stuff, right? There's a lot of jokes in the Marine Corps about the people that play in the bands. There are. Okay. There are. Yep. But when you're burying your battle buddy, how important are those bagpipes in that bugle to you in that moment? Well, you know, mistress, you know, I can tell you from personal experience in Arkansas, when I buried one of my Marines, Corporal Rogers, it was absolutely important. God rest her soul. You you needed that in that moment. Yeah. You know, when you're overseas and you're waiting on a care package and you're a Navy SEAL, how important are the people that that are in charge of the military mail? Hey, hey, look, 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 look. All kidding aside, the right there with the cooks, the number two guy is the mail guy. You want to make sure that 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 team is happy. They can't do their job without you. You, those little things mean everything. And so you can make all the, you know, fobbit jokes you want for a term for the military people that are listening to this, right? You can make all the pogue jokes you want. Like you can make those jokes and, and within the ranks of the military, you guys all get together and bust each other's balls. I've watched crayon eating marine insults go with air force guys to the navy thanks for the ride there's all that camaraderie that's required and necessary and justified in a lot of cases but those things from a military perspective and in a broader societal perspective and and human perspective um 
the acknowledgement that those things are important, that for every trigger puller in the military, there is a hundred support positions that go to work every day to make sure that trigger puller can do their job. Absolutely. How important were those women riveting during World War II back at home? Wouldn't have built the bombers. How important were the civilians that were donating the steel and recycling that metal because they knew the troops needed it? How important was it when they were turning off lights in cities to con- to control the electricity consumption so that the, the military had the electricity they needed because so much of their infrastructure had been... De- I'm not saying every one of them is equal, but you have to acknowledge they're important in that moment. Absolutely. You know, and that's what's going to get you across a finish line. You're running a marathon. Sometimes somebody hands you a Jolly Rancher. The Jolly Rancher is the most frivolous thing in the world. But to somebody that just ran 25 miles, that Jolly Rancher cuts them across the finish line. Speaking from personal experience. I was going to say, it sounds like you've done that. I have. And I was, and I gifted the, the Jolly Rancher knowing how important it was in that moment. Something stupid and frivolous, but can make all the difference in the world. So these are, these are lessons I've had to learn myself to solve my own problems. And also like admitting, okay, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to go to an expert. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to learn. I'm going to ask the questions. I'm going to value their time that they're taking to explain it to me. I, I'm going to pay someone what they're worth. I'm going to, um, you know, respect the effort that someone put into perfecting their craft, whatever that craft is. It, there are countless analogies and examples. And, and if we all did a little bit more of that, but to go back to the myopic focus of podcasting and what you and I are talking about, those skills, those, those things the, the little bits of, of preparation go so far. Absolutely. Absolutely. Last question. <laughs> uh, we, we could go for hours. Whatever, man. I got coffee. I'm good. When the coffee's gone, we got troubles. But you got coffee left. Go ahead. I do got coffee left. Thanks, by the way. Um, you've gone through so much. And there's been a lot of change in a short amount of time. Yeah. And last time I asked this question, like, I'm not telling you anything. You haven't earned it yet. (laughs) Give me a peek. What's on the horizon for you and the podcast and Bigfoot Productions? I I can't tell you what's on the horizon because it's literally in flux. It's not like I'm trying to hide the nuclear codes. Like I I legitimately don't. There's no football. I'm flying by the seat of my pants, man. You know what I mean? I can tell you what my goals are. Okay. Give me a goal. Goals are to up my game when it comes to the quality of the show I put out, speaking specifically about the podcast, and to be able to continue to raise the bar when it comes to the quality of the guests and the quality of the content. And if I do that, the audience will grow. And with a bigger audience, you can have a bigger impact on some of the things that I would like to do, mobilize volunteer efforts, like those kind of things. The bigger you make your circle, the more resources you have to go into battle, the more shit you can get done. So I try to be myopic in my focus to control what I can control 
and go, okay, I, I want to continue to put forth maximum effort to make every show good, to, to tighten up the loose ends, to make sure it sonically sounds great, um, to be able to make it work better on smart speakers, which is something I'm working on right now, um, to be able to continue to grow the radio show, you know, always striving for more stations and affiliates to eventually I would love to have the Mistress Carrie syndicated show where not only am I supplying the content, but I'm also getting cut in on the advertising of it all because that's kind of different from how I'm doing it now with all of the shows that I'm on now with the network is that I, I do the show, but that's the difference between syndication is that the syndication part is that you're involved in all of the facets of it, which I would love to be to get to that point. Um, you know, obviously I want to continue to add features to the website, which I'm working with the ad developers now, now that I'm able to leave the studio and do personal appearances and host events. I want to be able to do more of that stuff. Um, I'm always trying to bring in sponsors and advertisers that are going to be partners for me. I don't just want to slap someone's logo on my stuff that I want to work with companies and organizations that it's going to be a mutually beneficial situation and that we can do amazing things together. And that is then going to allow my company to be able to have a bigger part in the pun footprint for Bigfoot First Productions, but to be able to then be able to go out and support other, you know, like people have said, why don't you have your own nonprofit? Because there's so many amazing nonprofits out there doing right, the work right. and I'm not going to do a better job than them. It's my job to be able to just bring resources to them. Yep. And so I want to be able to do those kinds of things. Um, I would love to get to the point where I'm doing more traveling to be able to go out and to be in person, one-on-one, not one-on-one, -on -one, but like to be able to meet the people in the audience that I haven't met yet because they've started to listen, not because they grew up in New England, but because they stumbled on my podcast, but they live in Nevada or Singapore or to be able to start bringing the show on the road and to be able to interact with these people and have events in other places. I really want to be able to take that kind of war room thing and this little universe that I have and be able to, to grow, you know, um, I look forward to being able to dedicate a room specifically just to all of the different items in my merch store and all the merchandise that I have, you know, to be able to, to generate more and more products and to be able to really find out, I know like your patch on your hat, like I'm working on hats right now. Um, to be able to, to have the problem to go, I think I'm going to need to bring in some staff, <laughs> you know, so that I can, I can say, okay, this person's job is now to just pack the orders to make sure that the merch inventory is taken care of and that the orders are getting processed promptly and shipped out purpose, uh, um, correctly and purposefully and in a good amount of time to be able to bring in a salesperson whose job it is, is to just handle the advertising portion of it so that I can focus more on just making sure that the content is good and to kind of be five steps ahead. Like 
controlled growth and progress because I'm deathly afraid to stop growing, but I'm equally afraid to grow too fast and fail. And I think with any good company, you can die both ways. Oh, absolutely. You know, you can have a restaurant where nobody wants to eat, or you can have a restaurant where everybody wants to eat and nobody can get in. And then people stop trying and eventually nobody wants to eat there. You can fail by too much success too quickly too. And so I am constantly looking to surround myself with, with people that are going to be able to bring new ideas in, to bring new resources in that are going to offer a different perspective and go, oh, okay, well, maybe I can expand in that way, you know? So there's a lot of growth there. And then goals for me personally, um, you know, obviously for my mom to be as healthy and happy for as long as she can be with the best quality of life and most dignity possible, which is a lofty goal when you're dealing with an enemy like Alzheimer's, um, you know, to be, um, a better friend. I've been so busy and COVID has made it hard to be that friend that we all want to be to the people we love. You know, I want to be a great bonus mom to the kids. I want to be the best wife I can be to my husband. Um, Sometimes when you get bogged down by a lot of this stuff, those things get harder to do. And I think we could all hope to be a little bit better for the people that are around us that we love the most. So those are goals too. And, you know, to, to, for myself, I want to physically feel better, you know, to, to prioritize my own physical health and mental health and well-being, and, and to, and to be able to put as many miles on this car as I can before it goes to the scrapyard. It's not the years, it's the miles mistress. Yeah. It's the miles baby. And it's like, you know, I'm not purposefully putting myself last on that list of priorities. I think the important thing is that I'm on the list because I think so many times we leave ourselves off the list, our own physical health. And I have gotten so low recently to go back to how we started this conversation that I really have had to stop and put the oxygen mask on myself on the plane. And that is not anything any of us want to do because you feel like you're a failure. You feel like you're being selfish. You feel weak. You feel all of those things. And I have really had to stop myself and go, you are no good to anyone else. And so that is why I try, even if I'm second or third on the list, to make sure that I'm on the list, to make sure that, that I ate a good breakfast, that I'm hydrated on a hot day that I'm trying to get the best amount of sleep that I can, that I, I try to, in that color-coded calendar, if I know the day is going to be super crazy, that I make an appointment for myself yep. and go, this hour is non-negotiable. This 15 minutes is non-negotiable. And sometimes on a super busy day, I put that 15-minute block in there and all it is, is me taking the dog, walking her around the yard, And maybe going in and weeding my tomato plants for five minutes by myself. And then I come back in and I'm recharged to go back to your question earlier. Sometimes it's that, just that five minutes is what it's going to take for me to cross that one more thing off the list. And so I aspire 
to giving myself more of a break and to taking better care of myself. But that is really hard sometimes. You know, I got a lot of lofty goals, Travis. I don't know if I'm going to get any of them. I don't know. You know, I want to travel more. You know, I want to, I, I love to travel. It feeds my soul to go to new places and learn about new people and experience other cultures. I think everybody should do it. It's very eye-opening once you've done that. Military guys know that better than anybody. Absolutely. So I, I have a lot of, I have a lot of growth to do. You know, but at the same time, I'm always afraid to like grab the ring sometimes because I don't want to drop everything else. You know, I don't want to take too much on and then have everything fall. So slow, steady, controlled progress. Consistent, consistent effort over time to, to achieve goals. Yeah. You want to conquer land, you know, you can keep. Absolutely. You know, it goes back to this. It's a first element of chess, military engagement, anything. Yeah. Well, you know, mistress, it seems like it really seems like yesterday I was sitting there on my laptop with my USB mic over Skype and just trying to make sure I got through this thing. I to, know, man. To, to now. Look at but, you now. Well, it, it's something else. It's something else. You're not pot bound, Travis. You are not pot bound. Your roots got plenty. You've grown a lot and you've given yourself the space to, to keep doing it. That's huge. Cause you know, it's not easy to stay motivated. 300 episodes of a podcast is not an easy thing. It is very hard to stay motivated for that long, especially when you put a lot of effort into an episode and nobody listens to it. And you're like, Oh, Folk, this. I'll close with this for me. Because that has happened. I'm like, wait a minute. That was eight hours of work and like two people. What? It happens to everybody. Not just you. That happens to me. It happens to everybody. What, what I was, what I believe, this is how I do it now, mistress, is I just want to reach one person. The last time I click upload, the last time I power up the mixer and, you know, turn this on. I want to know that somebody got something out of it. And once I accepted that, this whole thing changed and got a whole lot better. And that somebody could be you. The interview you did could have changed you. And if no one else listened to it, are you going to tell me it wasn't worth it? No, of course not. Well, I mean, this time together was worth it. I mean, you mean people are going to listen to this? Well, I hope so. I mean, there's some people that, that. yeah, yeah, right. But I know, thought we were just talking because we were friends. We are friends, and we're going to share that friendship. Are for people yeah. are going to listen to this. Well, they have before. It's like, all right, the mistress. When's she coming on again? It's great. Got these big anniversaries, man. Three hundred episodes. Boom. I can't wait for your three hundredth, and I and I really, you know, getting there. I haven't missed a week in 108 weeks right now. So I'm at 108 episodes this week, 108 weeks. No. Never mind. That's not counting the bonus stuff. Right. And the sit reps and and, and all that stuff. And the, the kick-ass prime. Tell you. Hold on. I can tell you right now how many episodes it is, I think. It's 
like 560 something, I think. Get out. Between the after action reports from the war room interviews, the bonus episodes, the sit reps and the weekly episodes. Yeah. Well, that's a lot of shit. That is a lot of stuff in a short amount of time. 566. That's the total. It just came up on the, the thing. 566 episodes in one form or another. Well, I'm hoping by the time we get to number 400, I mean, you, you know, things are going to coalesce things for both of us. And it's going to be just, you know, what has happened to get us to move forward. I'm, I'm really, you know, looking forward to that. And, you know, again, I just, I tell people this, in, that, you know, number 62, you didn't know who I was, who's this guy. And you took time out of your day to talk to me. And I, I listened to that episode and I'm like, wow, I suck. God. <laughs> I that, listened to my last episode and say, wow, I suck. That never goes away. But, but it, 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 I don't know why you chose to, you know, spend that time with me and why you've come back. I, I mean, I don't really want to know. All right. That's part of the fun of this. But the fact is you do. And like, I'm going to listen to this one. I can tell you already, I'm going to be like, there's a lot to unpack that I got taught today with all the fun and, and, and hearing about your success and your challenges in a very real way. And so, you know, what I'm trying None to say of is us thank are you. alone in this man, none of well, us. Well, and all of our struggles are different, but they're really the same at the end of the day. Well, and when people are hurting, like I'm having a hard time sometimes what's helpful for me is knowing that I'm not alone. Not none alone. of us are alone. You don't fight alone. No. So. Well, ladies and gentlemen, she is Mistress Carrie. I'm going to have yeah. all the links to her, you know, shows and her Instagram and her website. You've got to go to the website, sign up for her blog, check out her merch, check out Wednesday, the golf pug, all that stuff. Tuesday nights, 8 p.m. Eastern time on Facebook live for cocktails in the war room. MistressCarrie.com has got all of it up there. Just go to the website. She couldn't have said it better. Mistress, again, thank you. And I can't wait to see you again soon. Thanks for having me. All right. And as we say in Oscar Mike Radio, we are mission in flight. And